our second message today by Mr. Matthew Steele, entitled, Let the Children Come. Good afternoon, everyone. The message today was, uh, well, it was inspired by uh, novella service and uh, the, the award that we've just, uh, or the, the gift that we've just given her. Um, and then also by the, the change in our Sabbath school program and some of the newer individuals that are coming along to teach our children. And so, as the title may give it away, I wanted to talk about our children. Talk about our children in the context of our church life and our home life, as maybe parents and grandparents. And then, of course, as elders and as father and mother figures within the church family. You know, uh, a few days ago, my, my son Benjamin I think kids, all kids do this, right? When you're not ready for a deep conversation, that's when they ask the question. And uh, he's just sitting away at the, uh, the living room table. I mean, I say the living room table. That was a slip of the tongue. We had a flood, so all our living room furniture is in the dining room. We have a folding table in the living room. Makes sense, right? So he's sitting there at the table, and all of a sudden he just sprouts up and he says, uh, Mommy, I really want to make sure that I'm in the first resurrection. And I think Renee's doing the dishes or something. Uh-huh, yeah, uh, what? Wow, that's pretty deep. So she took a few minutes and you know, she discussed it with him and assured him that he will be in the first resurrection and talked about how we can be in the first resurrection. A seven-year-old is asking a question about how to be in the first resurrection, how to be in the kingdom of God. You know, I like to think my children are, you know, a little bit more special than everybody else's, but not so much. Our children, all of our children, will eventually get to this point where they ask this question, how can I be in the kingdom of God? And it shouldn't come as any surprise to us, right? I mean, we spend enough time trying to teach them, don't we? It shouldn't be a surprise. We as parents, Sabbath school teachers, grandparents, we've taught our children. We've taught our children about Jesus, about his love for us, about our Heavenly Father, and his love for us, how he wants them to live with him. We've shared the kingdom of God with them. We've done this through Bible lessons and stories and, and crafts with putting oddly colored Bible figures on pieces of paper. They've done exercises. They've had lessons. They've learned this through Bible readings, like I said, and songs. And we've taught them through the annual festivals that we drag them along to and the Sabbath that we bring them to. They have been continually immersed in this faith. They have been just drenched in our doctrines. 
and in our beliefs. So it's no surprise that they should want what we want. That they should want to mirror us and be like us. We talk about being in the kingdom of God. That sounds like a pretty good place to them too. And we sometimes forget how important that is to them. Maybe initially it's important because, hey, mom and dad are going to be there. <laughs> I need to go where mom and dad are going. But later as that develops, that can take on a life of its own. And it is theirs. And of course, that's what we should strive for. They too want to enter the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 13, we find a very familiar passage. And yet it is powerful. If we just dwell on it a little bit and kind of consider the circumstances that took place around this very small, easily overlooked event, I think we can get a lot of truth, as Mark was telling us, to look for that truth out of this message. The people had gathered to hear Jesus. They'd gathered. They'd brought their children with them, too. And they wanted to hear what he had to say. And then they wanted to do something else. They wanted to bring their children to him. To have him bless them. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think that they loved their children any more or any less than we love ours? No. They were parents. Parents love their children. And it's important to parents as to who their children are with. Would you and I just be willing to take our child and, and have them blessed by some nobody? Somebody that we don't know their background. We're not even sure we believe them all that much. We don't know where they're from. We don't even know what they're doing or saying. Of course not. We're going to bring our children to somebody we trust. Somebody that we know is speaking the truth. Somebody that we can look at and say, I want my child blessed by this, this teacher, this rabbi, or this maybe a prophet, or maybe he's somebody more than that. So they, like us, want their children to be blessed and want a blessing from God. And so we see in verse 13 that they brought little children to him, that he might touch or lay his hands upon them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Chasing the parents out of here. Get those kids out of here. Nobody wants those kids here. Really? They thought Jesus, what, was too important. He's teaching right now, and he doesn't want to be bothered with little children. Little wonder that Jesus was angry, right? So you can imagine, you can see the situation. Jesus has been teaching. He's, maybe he's standing or sitting somewhere. And he sees all these kids starting to filter through the crowd. And what does he do? He probably gets excited. Here's some kids. He loves kids. As evidenced by the whole planet full of them. He loves children. 
He's excited. He's seeing them. And then here's these idiots of disciples coming along because they were denying children to come to Jesus. What are you guys doing? Get, you're the ones that need to get out of here. He wants the children. He wanted to recognize them. What do we do when we, we meet a new child and we're trying to comfort them or make them feel comfortable in this new place that maybe they've come to? We ask them their name and how old are you? Where do you live? And we ask about them. We validate them. He wanted to do all those things. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Renee pointed it out to me. He knew that he was a man that would never have children in the flesh. He knew that. He was not going to be like all the other men on the earth that could have those physical children in that same way. He knew that he had a special role. He knew that he was, in so many ways, the father of all children. Children were special to him. And I bet you he was excited to bless them. So when Jesus saw this, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them in his arms and he laid his hands on them and blessed them. I may have talked about this before, but in our house, we have a ritual that the boys and I and, and Renee, we call rockabye. And as you can imagine, it, it involves rocking. <laughs> we have this big lazy boy recliner, big red leather thing, and the boys climb on my lap still. They're still willing to do that. And it normally happens before bedtime, and we, we have a rockabye, and it, it rocks back and forth. I maybe tell them a story, but I pray on them. I ask God to bless them, watch over them while they sleep. We sometimes pray over things that they've had a challenge with, which is you know, normally each other. But we have this beautiful time. I love it. As a father, holding your boys. And it's a, it's a bonding time of love with my children. So we have this very special time. Well, that chair was originally purchased by Renee's grandmother, the boy's great-grandmother, Williams. And she purchased this while the boys were still in hospital, knowing that when they came home, and you all remember how small they were, that she was going to be sitting in that chair, rocking them, taking care of them, holding them, blessing them, praying on them. And they were so very tiny, and she helped so much in taking care of them. And it was such a blessing that we were able to have that. And so this tradition of rockabye continues. Jesus had his own kind of rockabye moment there with those children. Bringing them onto his lap or holding them in his arms. And I, I don't know how many children there were, but I am 
absolutely sure he would have blessed every single one. I don't think he would have left any out at all. He blessed them. And you know, you wonder, as a parent of one of those children, maybe later, after they recognized what Jesus had done, that they completely understood and realized who he really was, how thrilling was it to know that the Messiah, that God himself, blessed your children that day. That must have been moving to those parents. But isn't that what we all want? We want our children to be blessed by God. We long for that as parents, as grandparents, as parents in the faith and in the church. We want them to be blessed. We want them to be secured. We want them to be in the first resurrection, <coughs> in the kingdom of God. That's why we're here. That's why we're here, and that's why they are here. If you think about it, for any church, the easiest field of evangelism is the children that are already in the church. It is the easiest point to reach. We don't have to go outside to the world to evangelize our children. We can teach them right here, right now. And that, of course, comes with some, maybe a little added pressure. Because if we can't evangelize and teach our own children, <laughs> then how are we supposed to evangelize the world? So it is vitally important. They are the next generation of our church family. And what Jesus says to his disciples should also serve as a warning to us. For as much to them as to us, Jesus is saying, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. Another word for forbid is hinder. Don't hinder them. Don't prevent them. Don't prevent them from coming to me. Don't be like the disciples. You know, the disciples, they were religious people. They had a faith. They followed Jesus. They trusted in him. They did a lot right, but they very easily missed the importance of bringing children to Jesus. So we should take a lesson from that and be aware of our example. Because there are many ways in which we can get in the way. Many ways in which we can hinder our children. I think about it as a parent. Is our example one that promotes faith and trust? Is our example loving and kind? Are we delighted that they are here? Or do we get a little annoyed because they're messy and kind of loud? Well, I ask myself that question as a parent. You know, sometimes I come home and, you know, it's been a day at work and I come home and there's stuff everywhere. And, and you know, find myself hearing my own voice, actually maybe hearing my father's voice. Why do you just leave your coat in the hallway when you come in? Pick that up. 
don't leave that skateboard there. You're going to break somebody's neck. Really? Close the door. Were you born in a field? Were you born in a field? I was with them when they were born. They were not born in a field, right? Why do we say some of these phrases? You were born in a field. Don't put that in your mouth. Don't throw that at your brother. Stop that. Yeah, they can, they can try our patience. Eat your food. Don't play with your food. Don't give the dog your food. I think Fran Hope said it best one time. Maybe Renee and I were sharing some frustrations with spaghetti on the walls and all that kind of stuff. And, and she said, you know, it's funny. We're so desperate for them to learn to walk and talk. And then when they do, we want them to sit down and shut up. That's true. I had an aunt one time that told me that, yes, our children are so wonderful and, and just lovely that I just want to eat them up. And other times I wish I had. <laughs> but are they the crazy ones? Or are we the crazy ones? Because we wanted them. We had them. They didn't pick us. But we love our children. And <laughs> in spite of the challenges that they give us. One of the things I most regularly pray for is that my boys will, be, will grow up to be most like Jesus. I tend to pray harder because they're turning out a lot more like me than I would want. But I want them to be like Jesus. It is a prayer I actually pray every single night over them. I don't want to be a hindrance to my boys. I don't want to be a bad example. I want them to see only the good. No pressure, right, dads? No pressure. Get it right every time. Just as all of us here want the best for our children, in our church family, in our class time, and how we teach, how effective we are, are we reaching them? We need to consider those things and do the best we can. And that's good to consider those things. But there is a positive side of Jesus' statement. And I don't know if you've ever think about it, thought about it. He says, let the little children come to me. And he says it almost as though it is a natural thing for them to do. Do you notice that? Let the children come to me. They're coming to me. Just let them. Don't prevent them. Let them come. As I said before, teachers and parents and grandparents, all of us collectively as the family of the, of the church, we should check ourselves. Are we an example of faith? Are we an example? Do we allow them to come to Jesus? Do we get in their way? I think the next part of this most simple of verses is really just as profound. He says, for such, or for of such, is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. That's big. If we dwell on that. Because, as I can already tell with my son Benjamin, we're all in a hurry to grow up, aren't we? 
We want to meet those milestones. We want to learn to drive, and we want to do this and that, and there's this, these goals that we have out here. And it starts so young. And I, you know, I realize now that I kind of just blew through my childhood. I should have enjoyed it more. I knew how adulthood was going to be. Come on. And it, it's the human condition. And yet Jesus asks us to not do that. To be like a child. It's an incredible amount of information he's trying to get us to consider. First and foremost is the essential truth that in spite of ourselves, in spite of wanting to be older and better and bigger and wiser, even if we're 20, 30, 40, 60, 80 years old plus, we are still children. Sorry. I think you've got it all down. To God, we are still children. We're barely even born to him. God, our Father, looks at us that way. He looks at us as children because to him, we are. We think we're mature. We think we are wise. And I don't mean to dismiss the things that we've learned. And it's good that we've learned. <laughs> but in compared to him, we are children. I want to ask you a question. Seriously think about it. If Jesus were to come down here right now and sit at this chair and hold his arms out, which one of us would not want to join the children and sit on his knee and have him bless us? I would. Have him accept us. Because inside there is a child. And that child wants the acceptance of our Savior, of God our Father. I think we would sit on his knee. For in truth, we are all asking the same question, aren't we? That Benjamin asked. Remember? How can I make sure that I am in the first resurrection? How can I be in the kingdom of God with Dad? That's what he's asking. That's what we're asking. It's so easy to forget the simplicity of our faith. Because there's a lot of complex things, right? We have a lot of complex doctrines and, and truths and prophecy and, and understanding so many different things. Theology. Theology alone. You, you look at our own church tradition's theology and then expound that to Christian theology around the world. And it is a huge forest of which you can get lost. Any theology. You can lose yourself in it. And some lose the faith in it because they forget the simplicity that is in Christ. Don't get me wrong, biblical understanding is good. Prophecy is important. History is essential. The study of God's word is vital. But I think it must be done on the firm and simple truth, the simple foundation that is Jesus Christ. On the day of Pentecost, Peter in his sermon makes this abundantly clear. He tells those that are gathered there who Jesus was. He explains to them from the scriptures and they are convicted by what he says. 
And after they've heard all of this, he says in verse 37, Now when they heard it, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Simple. There was no complex religious rituals. There's no certain number of chants and go to this place, have this pilgrimage, do all of these things. Very simple. Repent of your life that you've lived so far. Turn around. Turn around that life. Recognize that you are a sinner. Be baptized as that outward manifestation of your faith and your faith in Jesus' power to save you. That you accept he can save you. That you accept he is the Savior to change you and for the remission and the removal of our sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. Simple. It's a promise. And when they did that, they received the Holy Spirit. That just blows my mind. It should blow our mind. We shouldn't get used to this. <laughs> this is phenomenal. Without this simple step, our faith, our religious education, our theology, our doctrine, doesn't matter at all. It's worthless. But that's not what, what, all that Peter says, is it? Because he continues with something so profound, more far-reaching than maybe we even think about. Because he continues, he says, for the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. So not only was the promise to them for their acceptance, for their repentance, for their baptism. You got kids? It's for them too. For them to accept. For them to be baptized. For them to receive the Spirit. What he's saying here that your children, our children, have the same promise given to them as we do. That the promise of salvation is to them every bit and in every way as it is to us. Why then would any church tradition entertain the notion that they are not called? Why would we even think that they might not be called? Why would God command the children of Israel, teach your children day after day, whenever you have a chance, continually teach them if they were not also part of God's plan, if they were not also called? In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18, he says, Therefore, you shall lay up these words, 
of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them. And notice this extra part of the promise. I never noticed this before. Like the days of the heavens above the earth. How long have the heavens been above the earth? A long time. And I would imagine that had Israel continued to do this, they would have, to this day, had their children living in the land, obeying God and following his commandments. That was the promise. But why would God ask them to do this if their children didn't matter? Why would God ask us to do this if our children are not called? We must conduct ourselves, our church life, the teaching of our children, with the assumption that they are called, because they are. Jesus said to us back in Mark chapter 10 and verse 14, he said, of such is the kingdom of heaven. It's almost as though the kingdom of heaven is already theirs. The challenge for us as parents and those that can support and help them around them is to help them stay on that road, stay on that track. Because they have the essential elements of what Jesus was asking us to remember, to have, to come to him as children. I know this notion might be challenging at times because we all have loved ones, family members, brothers, sisters, parents, children that maybe have not accepted, have not come into this way, have not believed. And that is challenging to us. But I think in some ways we have forgotten that we are more like children than we think. You know, a child, to a child a minute can seem like a long time, can't it? An hour is like torture. I want you to sit here in your bed and read a book for an hour. We call it downtime. An hour. I'm going to die of starvation and thirst. But a day is, you know, that might as well be a month. Tomorrow, we're not going till tomorrow. A, children, a child's perception of time is just different. But we think, in an adult way, that we understand time. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't understand time. Not at all. We have forgotten that we don't have a full perspective of time. Peter, again, in his second epistle... Chapter 3 and verse 9, he says this regarding the promise that is both to us and our children. He says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that the Lord, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. 
The Lord is not slack concerning what? His promise. As some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, maybe when we think about the promise of God, we think, well, maybe it's a little slack, or there's some other factor going on, and, and, and we've got to try and find an answer to this. This is part of the answer. There is seemingly a time and a place for us to come to repentance. Peter says that God is patient. He is long-suffering. That a thousand years is nothing to him. On this scale, how many days ago was Jesus on planet Earth? Two. He was just here a couple of days ago. You missed him. Sorry. That gives us insight into the scale that God works in. A thousand years is as a day. And yet for us, we're so desperate for him to come back. It has been so long, God, it's been two whole days. <laughs> we're his children. We still have that mindset of children compared to him. But we are children of the promise. So perhaps it's because we don't see the whole picture that we are tempted to look for answers where we shouldn't. Let me ask you a question. Do you think there are any mysteries of God? Any things that are in the Bible that we can even read that we should not attempt to answer? Does that just sound weird to you? Like, wait, we're supposed to understand the scriptures. We're supposed to study the scriptures, search the scriptures, know the scriptures. But I guarantee you, there's plenty parts of the scriptures that you're like, huh, that's weird. I wonder what that is. Simple one. You know the meaning of cast your bread upon the waters and it'll return back to you many days? Right? We, we have an idea of what that is. I heard a really good seminar one time that talked about we've got that all upside down. And that's just one tiny, maybe not even consequential point. I did hear a sermon one time and Ron Dart talked about this. And he raised the question. He said, in the Western mindset, we have to have an answer for everything. And I kind of think he's right. We're not willing to just let something lie. We've got to figure this out. We've got to answer it. There's got to be a reason why. Why? You ever heard that word before? There's little people that say, why, all the time. But why, Mommy? Why can't we do this? Sound like children. We've got to answer every question. We've got to know everything there is to know. Everything must be understood. Why did this happen? I ask it all the time. Mainly people at work that do things, and I'm like, why did you do that? Why? But we want to know. But Job is an interesting fellow. Because for all his certainty, 
for all the things that he espoused and all this experience that he had, he comes to a point where he realizes maybe he shouldn't ask why, right? So if you would, turn to Job chapter 42 and verse 1. This is getting to the end of his trials. And the summation is about to happen very, very quickly. And you remember, God demanded an answer of him. He said, all right, you tell me how it is then. Job's response, he said, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. That's really interesting scripture, isn't it? So if no purpose of God's can be withheld, that nobody can stop him from executing his purpose, his purpose is that all come to repentance. We read that earlier. Isn't that fascinating? But again, we have this narrow constraint of time. God is working in much bigger numbers. He said, you asked, who is this who hides counsel with knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and I shall answer you, uh, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. There was things that Job realized were too wonderful him, to beyond his mind to comprehend. He has a child's mind and compared to God. Paul himself also has this experience, if you remember. When he, he recites how he saw things that were not lawful to, to kind of tell anybody about, let alone understand. I think there are some questions that sometimes we just shouldn't ask. Or if we ask, maybe we shouldn't have an opinion on. We might lock ourselves into a situation and it has unintended consequences. One of them might be whether we discuss or think or call, uh, decide or meditate on whether somebody else is called. I think that question can lead us really nowhere beneficial. And I'm not talking about making a discernment about whether somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about making a decision or a, at least a thought in our mind whether somebody has the calling of God on their life. We need to be careful. There are un unintended consequences with that. Peter himself asked a very similar question. You remember, you know, after Jesus asked, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. So on and so forth. You know, Peter's getting a little uncomfortable now. I got to get the focus off of me here. Wait, here's this other disciple, right? In John chapter 21 and verse 20. 
He said, it's turning around. He saw the disciple that Jesus loved following, <clears throat> who also had leaned on his breast in the supper and, and said, Lord, who's the one that betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but, but what about this guy? What about that fella? And Jesus is like, what is it to you? What does he say? If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't worry about that other guy. <laughs> you need to worry about yourself. Right? Is he or she called? What's that to us? We just need to follow Jesus. You follow me. In the end, that is all we can do. That's all we really should be worried about and put our energy on. Now, I may be completely wrong, but I believe the promise. I believe the promise is to me, and I believe the promise is to my children. I just read it in the scripture. And the children of God are all called. But the promise is to all of us because it is God who decides who is called. And I see from his word that he wills that all will come to repentance in Christ Jesus. There is one way. There is one standard. But I don't have to worry about how God is going to get everyone else there. I just have to worry about how I am going to get there. If I'm wrong in this assumption, I don't think there's any harm. Because my focus is where Jesus tells me to put it, which is on my own salvation. The way I try to look at it is that my faith is that I look out for myself. And if I am doing the right things, I need to make sure that my own calling and election is sure. And this, of course, is the rest of that simple message of salvation in Christ Jesus. Because in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, or moral excellence. To virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, and here is the big one, self-control. Something we're always telling our boys, self-control hands, come in, calm down, focused. Self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, <clears throat> you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. It's the only call that we can affect, isn't it? It's really our own. Make our calling and election sure. If you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord. Simple, 
simple to read, simple to understand. It's not complicated. This is the answer to Benjamin's question. This is the answer to all of our questions of how we can enter into the kingdom of God.